We'll be looking at the 14th Psalm. The 14th Psalm. I'm going to read it to you in its entirety. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. To the choir master of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers, who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Let's pray. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we acknowledge together as we read earlier in your word that wisdom and might belong to you. And so it is you, O God, who gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And so we ask now that you would teach us from your holy and inspired word, by your spirit, that we might be wise and understanding about who you are, about who we are, and about what life will look like for us in this fallen world. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as I have been studying the psalm that lays before us, the text before us, as the week went by, the more I studied it, the more excited I became to preach the text. And there are many reasons for that, as I hope you see as we walk through this text. But one of those reasons is I feel like it's such a good complement to the series that we just finished over the last two and a half years, our study through the book of Acts, the Acts of the risen and ascended Lord Jesus Christ through his apostles as they build his church, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and declare the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason I think it, Acts 14 is a good complement to that study is because what we saw in the book of Acts, one of the major themes that came up again and again, is that as Jesus is building his church through his people, his people are constantly experiencing opposition, hatred, animosity, and hostility from their enemies, from those who hate God and his gospel and his people. And as we looked at that, and we saw that in the book of Acts, that animosity should not have surprised us. Why? Because that hostility between believer and unbeliever has been there ever since Genesis chapter 3, ever since the fall. 
You remember back in Genesis, after Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, disobeying the command that God had given them, God pronounces curses, judgments on the man, the woman, and the serpent. And you remember, one of those curses was, there is going to be animosity, hostility, between the seed of the woman and between the seed of the serpent. Now, who are those two people groups? The seed of the woman is those who God graciously saves and enters into covenant. The line through whom this skull crusher, the one who would crush the head of the serpent, would come. This is God's chosen people who he graciously saves, the seed of the woman. And who is the seed of the serpent? The seed of the serpent are those who God leaves in their depravity, who leaves um, as, as those who, who wallow in their fallenness and their sinfulness. They reflect the character of their father who is Satan, the devil himself. And so from the very beginning, after the fall happens, there's this animosity and strife between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we see that almost immediately, don't we? Because what does Cain, who is the seed of the serpent, do to Abel, who is the seed of the woman, He kills him. This animosity manifests itself in outright murder. And we see that all throughout the pages of Scripture. We saw that in Acts. We see that in Jesus' ministry. He has enemies who oppose him. And so he tells us, You are not greater than me. A servant's not greater than his master. They hated me. They're going to hate you too. And so what's incredible as we come now, to to the 14th psalm, is here is a psalm that God in His grace and His mercy has given to His people, given to His church, so that we as God's people can understand the very essence and nature of our enemies, of unbelievers, those who are the seed of the serpent, and how we should respond to them. How we are to live life in light of the persecution that they heap upon us because they ultimately hate God. And they hate us as a result, and they're opposed to God's gospel. And so what this psalm shows us, teaches us, is three realities that we as Christians need to know, need to be aware of, as we interact with our enemies, experience opposition and hostility from them, so that we can respond appropriately. And here are the three realities. First, we need to understand mankind's folly in verse 1, God's judgment of mankind's folly in verses 2 through 6. And then lastly, we need to understand the Christian's hope, the hope that we have in the face of our enemies in verse 7. And again, we're looking at this so that we will be better equipped to know how to interact with our enemies. That's the, the, the purpose that this psalm served throughout the ages for the people of God in the Old Testament. And that's the purpose that it serves for us as God's people in the New Testament. So let's look first then at mankind's folly. First, we have the superscript in verse 1, to the choir master of David. So we know that David wrote this to the choir master. We know that David is the author. And here's what he starts out by saying about our enemies. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now, I find this interesting. This is an interesting beginning to this psalm. Because what we need to understand is this was the prayer book, the song book of the Old Testament saints. And so Jesus himself, when he was growing up, um, would have sang this psalm 
would have prayed this psalm. And so you can imagine the people of God coming to this and singing, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. I mean, you know, it's just an interesting, what does this have to do with them? I'm sure it would be convicting on the one hand, um, and we'll see why that would be convicting to them. But I also think that this, again, is informing them as they're in exile, as they're being persecuted, what is going on at the heart level of their enemies. And here's what the fool says. The fool says there is no God. Now, what is David telling us here? Is David telling us that that this is an intellectual problem? That the fool is stupid at the level of his mind? And that he doesn't actually know that God exists? Well, no, we know that's not the case. Why? Because what does David tell us in Psalm 19? What does he say? He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. They make the glory of God known. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out to the ends of the earth. Their words to the end of the world. What is David telling us there? Man is without excuse. Because of how God has created all things. They testify that God exists. That He created us. That He is glorious and eternal and all-powerful. So that man, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, says that man is without excuse. Because although they know God, they neither honored Him as God, nor thanked Him as such. So what we need to understand is that this is not an intellectual problem. It's not that they don't know that God exists. They do from creation and because of the fact that they're made in the image of God themselves. God has not left himself without witness. All creation testifies that there is not just some nebulous, unmoved mover divinity. No, the God of the Bible is the God who exists and his creation testifies to that. So what is the fool saying in his heart then? Well, what the fool is saying in his heart is, I don't want there to be a God. See, this isn't an intellectual problem. This is a heart problem. This is rebellion. I don't want there to be a creator. I don't want there to be someone who calls the shots. And so at the heart level, I'm going to rebel against him. I'm going to live the way I want to live my life. I'm going to attempt to be a law unto myself because at the end of the day, the fallen human sinful heart wants to be God himself. Wants to overthrow God's rule and reign and take our place as God. That is what our hearts scream in their fallen state. And you see, it's because of this godless heart, this rebellious heart, that then godless actions, rebellious actions spring forth. And David says that in the second half of verse 1. What does he say? They, that is the fools, those who say this in their heart, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Jesus echoes this, doesn't he, in his earthly ministry. In Matthew chapter 15, what does he say? He says about the cleanliness laws. You guys, you're missing the boat. It's not that these things from the outside, if you don't wash your hands, 
can defile you and make you dirty. No, what defiles a man? It's what comes out of his mouth. And where does that come from? It's what comes from his heart. Where does adultery and lying, thievery, rebellion against God, murder, where do, just take the Ten Commandments, the violation of all of those, where does it find its fountain? The heart of fallen man. That's what is wrong with all the human atrocities. That's the source of all the human atrocities, rather, that we see in our world today. It's the rebellious human heart that says, there is no God, and so I'm going to live however I see fit. I am going to do what is right in my own eyes. Now, brothers and sisters, lest we listen to this and go, amen, man, I'm thinking about unbelievers that I live with, and oh, man, does that, does that encapsulate their attitude? Man, preach it. But wait a minute, brothers and sisters. You need to understand a very overwhelming truth and reality, a truth that convicted me as I was studying this passage. You understand that each one of us as Christians are still in this battle between the flesh and the spirit. We are a new creation in Christ, but the flesh is still there. It doesn't have dominance. The spirit does. And so there's this war that rages, Galatians 5, Romans chapter 7, that happens in our hearts between the flesh and between the Spirit. And you see, every time the flesh wins out, every time we sin, do you know what our hearts are saying in that moment? There is no God. I'm going to live however I want. There is no God. Because if we were living in light of the reality that there is a God, we would stop ourselves. And yet in the flesh, now we hate this about ourselves as Christians, don't we? We can't wait for the day when the flesh will be fully and finally eradicated. But in that moment when we sin, what we're saying is, in the flesh, from our hearts, there is no God. And so I'm going to live however it is that I see fit to live. Isn't that overwhelming? That, that is what we are saying with our sin. To our covenant God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who have graciously saved us and redeemed us. We're joining the fool and we're shaking our fists in the face of Almighty God. And so that should humble us. And that we should repent and receive forgiveness. And look forward to the day when we will be fully and finally purified when we see Jesus face to face. But there's another implication to all of this. As we share the gospel, right? What are we supposed to do with our enemies? We share the gospel with them. We love them. We lay down our lives for them. And as we share the gospel with them, what we need to understand, as we we try to talk with them and have a conversation, again, it's not ultimately an intellectual issue. It's not ultimately that they can't understand it. It's that they don't want to accept it. And live in light of the fact that there is a God, a God who's not left himself without testimony, either in creation or in his word. They want to rebel against that and turn away from that. And so what are we, what are we hoping happens? We're hoping that their heart is changed. They need their heart of flesh taken, excuse me, their heart of stone and be given a heart of flesh. They need to be raised from spiritual death to spiritual life. Which one of us here, brothers and sisters, is capable of doing that? None of us. We're not even capable of changing our own hearts. Who changes our hearts? The Holy Spirit graciously does. And so here's the implication. As we share the gospel with unbelievers, 
and our enemies? Are we on our faces praying that the Lord would give them a new heart? That he would open up their eyes, even as Saul's eyes were opened. And he went from being a persecutor, an enemy of the church and God, to being its greatest tool in the hand of the Lord Jesus. Are we praying for that? If we're not, we're misunderstanding what's happening in evangelism. And we're misunderstanding the state of fallen man's heart. Because mankind's folly ultimately doesn't spring from his head. It springs from his heart. And so we should be praying as we share the gospel with unbelievers that Lord would, the Lord would give them spiritual eyes to see that which in and of themselves they are incapable of seeing. So we've looked at mankind's folly. Next, let's look at God's judgment on mankind's folly. We're going to see more of mankind's folly here, but accompanied with that, we're going to see God's judgment upon it. Look at verse 2 with me. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. So this psalm is interesting. It starts from earth, focusing on the fool, man, human beings, And what it notices is that they're standing there as God's creation, God's image bearers, saying, there is no God. We're going to live however we want, even though they know better than that, because they're made in God's image and because of the testimony of creation. And yet they're saying this, there is no God. Meanwhile, what's happening in the heavens? Yahweh, the Lord of lords and King of kings is sitting on his throne and he stoops down to look down at wee tiny man, his image bearer. He looks down on those whom he exercises his sovereignty over. And he is searching the hearts of men. He's looking at their actions. He can understand what they're thinking at the heart and mind level. And who is this again? This is Yahweh, the one who is holy and righteous and just the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things, the redeemer of his people. And so this is a judgment that you can trust because Yahweh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, God cannot lie. He is truth itself. He is wisdom itself. And so as he searches the hearts and minds of his image bearers who he created for his own glory to live in in submission to him, to walk with Him in fellowship and communion and joy and delight. He looks down on them, and what is He looking for? He's looking to see if there's anybody who seeks wisdom. That's what understanding is. What is wisdom? The the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Standing in awe of who He is. Is anybody seeking wisdom? That's what the Lord is asking from on high. He's looking down. Is anybody seeking after me and the fellowship that I created my image bearers for? That's what he's asking. And what's the, what's the observation that he makes? What's the declaration that he makes about all of his image bearers collectively? He says, they have all turned aside. Together, they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. So we're given the character here of fallen humanity. And and what does David say? First of all, and this is really God speaking his judgment through David and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, first of all, they've all turned aside. Turned aside from what? They've all turned aside from God. 
They've all turned aside from their creator who God made for fellowship with him. Not because he needed them, but as an overflow of his goodness and his love. They've turned away from walking the path of the law that he has given us as his creation. That he wrote on our hearts and then inscripturated in the Ten Commandments. And he says, they're all going their own way. I created them for a specific end and purpose, which is my glory. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And they've all turned aside from that. They've turned away from that path. They've turned away from me. It's like what Isaiah says in Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way. Forget the way of the Lord is the cry of the fallen human heart. I'm going to go my own way. I'm going to be a law unto myself. I'm going to do what is right in my own eyes. And because of this rebellion, because they've all turned aside, what else does David say about their character? Look again at verse 3. Together they have become corrupt. They've spoiled. They've gone rotten. They have no use anymore for what I created them for. I created them for this great end to have fellowship with me as my image bearers. I didn't create them corrupt. I created them holy and righteous. Go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. What does God pronounce over all his creation? It is good. It is good. It is good. And yet man now is described in his very essence and nature as what? Corrupt. Because he's rebelled against God. He has not obeyed God's law, but rather sinned and given his heart over to lawlessness. And it's not just that they become corrupt, it's that they've all stopped doing good. Look at the tail end of verse 3. There is none who does good, not even one. They're not doing the good that I created them to do. They're doing whatever they want, and that is corruption and abominable deeds. And you notice the universality of this language here? They've all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. Okay, I don't know. Are we getting this clearly enough? Well, David cinches at home here. There is none who does good. Really? David, really, Lord, as you're looking down on the mass of humanity, there's not even one person who's doing good? No. Not even one. And this isn't something new, by the way. This is the testimony of Scripture again and again and again. Let me just give you a few quick examples from the book of Genesis. What does the Lord say about fallen humanity right before he floods the entire earth? What does he say he observes about man in Genesis chapter 6, verse 5? The thoughts and intentions of man's heart are abominable and wicked and evil constantly. And it says that the Lord is sorry that he created man, so he wipes him out in a flood. That's a just judgment from a just God. Or think about um, when the peoples of the nations gather together to build the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. What are they doing in that? What What is the author of Genesis showing us? That they are trying to, they say, make a name for ourselves. We're going to build a tower up to the heavens. Everybody will be able to see it, and they'll know how great we are. It's the exact opposite of what God created them for. God created them to live for His glory and show the greatness of His name. 
And yet they're trying to make a name for themselves rather than put on display the glorious name of Almighty God. And so what does God do in judgment? He draws near and he confuses their languages so that we have the mess internationally that we now have today. What about Sodom and Gomorrah? You remember the Lord hears the outcry of his people in Genesis 16. And he says, I'm going to come down and see if it's as bad as my people say it is. And as he draws near, um, uh, Abram interrupts and says, will you spare the city if there's 25? You remember he starts kind of high and then he whittles it down to about five. And the Lord says, yeah, I'll spare the whole city for five righteous people. Did the Lord find five righteous people? There was no one who did good. Not even one. And so what did he do? He destroyed the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is the testimony. These are just a few examples. The testimony of Scripture again and again is that man has together become corrupt. Depravity has affected every single one of our faculties because of our guilt that's imputed to us through Adam as our federal head and then through our own sinful choices and decisions. And so when the Lord looks at the mass of humanity, he sees a bunch of little pharaohs. Remember Pharaoh, how he kept hardening his heart against God as he made his wonders known through him through the, the, the plagues? And Pharaoh hardened his heart and turned away from God. Now, you may be sitting there, again, thinking, yeah, that's unbelievers, brothers and sisters, that's where we were before God saved us. You understand that, right? God didn't save us because we were somehow more moral, because we were doing good, because we hadn't been corrupt, because we hadn't turned aside. No, that's your story, and that's my story in Adam. And if God had not graciously drawn near and regenerated our hearts, then we never would have turned to him. You need further proof of the fact that this is true of all humanity. Just go to Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. Paul picks up this very psalm, and he says it's true of Jew and Gentile alike. We're all fallen. There's no hope for us in and of ourselves. We've all turned away and rebelled against God. And here's what John Calvin says about these verses in Psalm 13 in particular. He says, all of us, when we are born... Bring with us from our mother's womb this folly and filthiness manifested in the whole life, which David here describes, and we continue such until God makes us new creatures by his mysterious grace. Why is there any difference between us and unbelievers, between us and our enemies? It's purely the gracious working of Almighty God on our behalf. That's why Jesus had to come. You understand, we were once the enemies of God, saying there is no God. And so Jesus comes, becomes a man, and his entire life is perfectly submitted to God's law. Lived for God's glory. Lived in fellowship with God. You understand, Jesus never once in the earthly ministry said in his heart, there is no God. The only human being who ever existed that that is true of. Why did he do that? For you and for me. So that that perfect track record, which is not our own, but Jesus's, could be imputed and counted as our own so that God now treats us as if we lived Jesus's life. And then what happened on the cross? Jesus paid the penalty for our rebellion that the law required. The just wrath of Almighty God was poured out on Jesus so that there is no none left for us. So brothers and sisters, there should be a humility as we receive 
um, this violence and this opposition and hostility from our enemies, in many ways it should be like looking in a mirror, understanding that is where I would be. That's what I would be like, and even worse, if the Lord had not saved me and redeemed me and united me to His Son and brought me into gracious fellowship with Himself. And so there shouldn't be hatred and animosity in return. This is why we're commanded again and again in the New Testament to do what? To bless those who curse us. To love those who hate us. To pray for those who want to kill us. Because we have been commanded to love those who are no different than us except for the gracious working of Almighty God in our hearts. But you see, because of God's gracious working, there is a distinction between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the seed of the serpent, David tells us here, actually oppresses the seed of the woman. Look at verse 4. This is a continued description of unbelievers' character. Not every single unbeliever, but generally speaking. Have they no knowledge, verse 4, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord. So what's the Lord saying here? He's saying about these unbelievers, these enemies of my people, they are eating up and devouring with violence, killing, taking away their possessions, my people. And you know the kind of attitude that they have when they do it? They have a cavalier, thoughtless, guiltless attitude as they oppress my people. You know what it's like? It's like when you see somebody eat a piece of bread. Now, unless they have a a gluten intolerance or celiac disease, do they put much thought into that action? They don't, do they? That's why they put those dinner rolls when you go out to to eat at a restaurant. They know that you're just going to thoughtlessly eat those. And we do, don't we? Maybe some of you don't. Most of us do. But you don't feel guilty. You don't put much thought into it. And what the Lord is saying about the enemies of his people is that they devour my people like you would eat a piece of bread. That thoughtlessly... With a clear conscience, they don't even think twice about it. It's not to deny that there is common grace, even an unbelieving man. I'm not denying that, that they can know certain things. And from a human level, do things that seem good. But you understand from God's perspective, no one reaches that standard because they've all turned away from Him. And so what do the unbelievers do? They devour God's people. They've abused them. It's kind of like earlier in Psalm 10. If you you look there, well, you don't have to look there. I'll just describe it to you. In the first 10 verses, David describes how his enemies are, are, are persecuting the people of God. And then in verse 11, he says of them, that they say in their hearts, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. So they're saying to themselves, God doesn't see. God doesn't care. That's why he's letting me do this to you. And so they trample over God's people, and it all springs forth from their wicked, foolish hearts. Now, the ironic thing is, in verses 5 and 6, we're shown that they do sometimes have this inexplicable outbreak of fear. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. There, they, that is the unbelievers, the enemies of God's people, are in great terror. For God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is his refuge. So what's, what's he saying here? He's saying there are times as they're persecuting my people because I am in the presence of my people. 
I've so united myself to my people that when they are in the presence of them, they, they sense my presence and they understand judgment is coming. You are going to pay for this. And so I have this overwhelming sense of terror at times. Though they seem bold and cavalier, they are brought to the reality of the fact that there is a God and He will judge you for these ways that you rebel against Him and torture and violently grab His people. And and really, it's very vivid here in verse 6. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is His refuge. If you ever read Voice of the Martyrs or you've read accounts of how in, uh, in other parts of the world, how Christians are treated at the hands of their enemies. It's not like how our enemies treat us here. Their enemies will kill them. They will break up their families, take away their possessions, burn down their businesses, their, the places where their churches meet. And there's historical accountings of their enemies literally mocking them. Where's your God? Call on him. Have him stop me. Come on. They know. The unbelievers know. The enemies know. That God's people look to him for refuge and they throw that in their face. Have your God save you. And oftentimes God doesn't save his people in those moments, does he? But he will when he comes back. He will when he comes again. And we'll look at that in a bit when we look at the Christian's hope. But brothers and sisters, as we are called to love our enemies... And share the gospel with them. There should be this this humility and this compassion and love in response to their hatred and hostility towards us. Because we understand that this is what God has saved us from. We're no better. There's, There's nothing inherently in us that attracted God to us. It was purely an act of His love and His grace and His mercy. And so we should understand that as we interact with these unbelievers. We should pray even as Jesus did, as he died on the cross. Father, forgive them. They don't know that they're actually persecuting your people. Forgive them, and may we show them compassion and love even as they persecute us. Because we know that God's judgment is coming. And let's pick that up in this third point. In verse 7, the Christian's hope. We've looked at mankind's folly, God's judgment on that folly. And now let's look at the Christian's hope in all of this. Because this is going to help us understand how we can move towards our enemies with compassion and love. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. When the Lord restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Here's the thing that the people of God knew. Even in the old covenant, a day was coming. A day was coming when salvation would come out of Zion. So this ends with a prayer. Oh, that this would happen, Lord. Oh, that you would bring your salvation out of Zion. This is what the hope of the people of God. I, I think about this every time we sing that Christmas carol. O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. That's the longing of the people of God as they, they waited for this salvation. But what is this salvation going to look like? What does this salvation that comes out of Zion look like? We'll go back to Psalm 2. Look at the second psalm. We're going to look together at verses 4 through 6 to answer this question. And I don't recall, I don't, I don't know if you recall rather, but two summers ago when we looked at the psalms, so I'm going to guess you don't remember because it was that long ago, when we looked at Psalm 1 and 2, we commented that this used to be one psalm. As a matter of fact, in some uh, traditions within 
Orthodox Christianity. They don't have Psalm 1 and Psalm 2. Uh, they, they combine them together, and then Psalm 3 is Psalm 2. Psalm 4 is Psalm 3, and so on and so forth. That's not how we break it up here. But I do believe these two Psalms go together, and they serve as a gateway to the rest of the Psalter. So here's a little Bible study tip as you're studying the Psalms yourself. Ask yourself the question as you're reading any given psalm, how does this direct me back to Psalm 1 and 2? Because I guarantee you it will in some way, shape, or form. And Psalm 14 is no exception to that. So let's look here at verses 4 through 6 in answer to the question, what does this salvation that comes out of Zion look like? He who sits in the heavens laughs. Now who sits in the heavens? We already know this from Psalm 14. Yahweh does. The one who is holy, holy, holy. The creator God of all who is the covenant-keeping God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Well, the Lord holds them in derision as he laughs at them. He holds who in derision? The nations, the kings, the rulers who rise up and say, let us throw the, the, the chains and the cords, the bonds that God has put upon us and his anointed, let us cast those off. What's, what are they talking about? God's law, God's word. Doesn't that sound like Psalm 14? The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Let's live however we want. And so they're saying, God is, they're saying this to God, and God laughs and holds them in derision. And here's what he says to them, verse 5. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. So what's the hope out of Zion? Better question, who's the hope out of Zion? It's God's king. Now you say, wait a minute, David is God's king. Yes, that's true. But you remember, God gave David a promise in 2 Samuel chapter 7. You will have a son, a greater son than you. I will call him my son. He will be my son. And he will rule and reign on your throne forever, David. Who is that? Who is that king? Who is this king of glory. It's Jesus. We know that from Acts chapter 2 verse 30. Write that down and look that up later. We went through that when we went through the book of Acts. That's Peter's sermon at Pentecost. Acts chapter 2 verse 30. And look at Psalm 110. It makes it abundantly clear there as well. Jesus is the promised king who comes out of Zion. But here's the important thing to note. How did Jesus come to bring salvation? He didn't come the way his disciples expected, did he? What did his disciples expect? We're going to have a king that comes, overthrows the Roman Empire, destroys them militarily, restores Israel to political and economic power, and we're going to rule and reign with this Messiah, and all the nations are going to have to come to us and submit to us. Is that what Jesus did? Jesus didn't come. How, how did he come? Was he born to a royal family? Well, in one sense, you could say, according to God's standard, he was. But in another sense, no. He was born in a lowly stable, in a cave, to, to a lowly father and mother. And, and we have 30 years of obscurity of Jesus' life. It fascinates me that we almost know nothing about those 30 years of Jesus' life. We know very little. And then he shows up and does ministry for three years, has a bunch of ragtag disciples follow him, and eventually he's crucified on the cross at the behest of his religious enemies and the Romans, crucified like a common criminal. Now, what would the Jews have thought of someone that was crucified on a tree? They were cursed. 
And so Jesus' disciples, after he's crucified and dead and buried, they walk away and go, Luke 24, well, we thought he was the Messiah, but I guess maybe we were wrong. He wasn't the type of Messiah that they were expecting. Because how does Jesus come? He comes and he dies at the hands of his enemies. He lays his life down. Nobody takes it from him. He lays it down so that he can take it up again to the pleasure of his Father. And why does he lay his life down at the hands of his enemies? So that we might be saved and redeemed. So that our sins might be paid for. And we might be reconciled to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Now, how does that help us, though, as we interact with our enemies? David's looking forward to the first coming of the Messiah. We look back on the first coming of the Messiah. And we understand as we look at the cross that that is what was necessary for our salvation. And so that's what's necessary for the salvation of our enemies as well. And so we want to pray for our enemies, even as Jesus did as he was dying on the cross. Father, save them, forgive them, draw them to yourself. Well, you say, well, what about the sins? What if they do repent and they've committed these horrible sins against me? Who's going to pay for those sins? I have to absorb that, carry that pain the rest of my life? No, that, that sin will have been absorbed by Jesus on the cross. And that's what we want for our enemies. We want their sins to be absorbed by Jesus on the cross even as ours were. But then the second coming of Jesus also helps us be able to love our enemies. Because what happens if our enemies don't repent and they continue to terrorize us, as often happens? Well, what we need to understand is that when Jesus comes back, he came like a lamb to be slain, but when he comes again, he's going to come as a conquering king, as a a roaring lion who will destroy and rip to shreds and decimate his enemies. And so we don't have to become bitter and try to exact justice and bring vengeance upon our enemies' heads. We're free from that temptation because Jesus says, vengeance is mine, I will bring justice. Every wrong will be righted. And so I have now freed you and commanded you to be able to love your enemies, even as I have. Now you look at that and you go, that seems impossible to love your enemies like that. You know when the gospel shared in other parts of the world, where people see Christians be persecuted, this is the hardest one to swallow. I gotta, I gotta love my enemies. And we we fail at that, don't we? We sin. And so what's the hope? Jesus perfectly loved his enemies in our place. He paid the penalty for the ways that you and I sin against our enemies rather than love them. And Jesus comes alongside and he says, I'm not just your substitute, I'm also your example. Let me teach you how to love your enemies, because I did it perfectly, and you're never going to do it perfectly. But as I walk alongside of you, and my spirit does his work, and you hear the word, you're going to grow in that more and more, day by day. So do you see how the first and second coming of the Messiah, the salvation that comes out of Zion, allows us to be able to love our enemies, even as they want to take our lives from us? To our dying breath, we can share the gospel with them, The question is, is the first and second coming of Jesus truly our hope? Or are we looking to something else? Are we looking to someone else? Or instead is the cry of our heart, even the cry of the people of God as they waited for Jesus' first coming, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lonely exile here. That's us now. In Jesus, we are Israel because Jesus is the true Israel. Until what? 
until the Son of God appear again. And as we wait for that day, we can rejoice. We can rejoice because we know that day is certain. God with us is coming, and he shall come to us, O Israel. How gracious of God to show us the heart of fallen mankind, understanding that that was once our heart, but he's graciously saved us from it. And we can expect to be persecuted from our enemies, but we should share the gospel with them and love them. Because as Paul says in Romans, that's like pouring hot coals on their head. Because what are we saying to our enemies when we don't return evil for evil, but good for evil? We're saying we've entrusted just judgment to one who's coming, and they hate that. But that's our refuge. That's our peace. When the Lord will return and restore the fortunes of Jacob. So brothers and sisters, this is why we can rejoice. Why we can be glad, even in this fallen world, as we are persecuted by our enemies. Let's pray.